Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I must have had the camera on early, didn't realize I was on camera, but I'm happy to see you even if you've already been seeing me. My name is Jeff Smelser. We're going to be talking about abortion today. With me, as usual, is Joe Works from, actually he's in Fairlawn, New Jersey, but he's working with a church in Elmira, New York now, and will soon be living up in that area. Joe, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing today? Doing very well. And Chase uh, Byers, who is in Harrisburg. Did I get it right, Chase? Did I, did yes, I right? got it right. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the capital city, the capital city of the Commonwealth in which I live. And so, of course, I know how to properly say the, the name of that city. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to be talking about abortion today. We do invite our, our viewers to join us. You can join us by means of the comments section. If you're watching us through Facebook, you just post your comment there and we'll get that comment. If you are watching us by means of BibleQuest.tv or the uh, BibleQuest app, the Zoom app, uh, there's a little Q&A tab you can use. Uh, and I just got a note saying I see you. So indeed, I was on screen early. I think I forgot to get my camera turned off ahead of time. But here we go. Let's talk about abortion. Guys, let's start out with this. Let's, let's talk about Abortion just seems horrific to many of us. And of course, to many people, it's no big deal. It's just a, a blob of tissue. But how it seems is really not the question that we want to start with. What we want to start with is, is there a biblical principle here? What does the Bible say? Does it tell us something that should lead us to a conclusion about whether or not abortion is right or wrong? Where do you guys want to start? Well, I think just maybe a logical place to start is just recognizing that God is the creator of life. Uh, and so we do need to uh, honor his word above any other logic or reasoning or, uh, you know, claim of human wisdom. So, but, you know, somebody will quickly come back and say, uh, well, you know what, though? Um, it's not a life until it's born. Before it's born, it's just uh, fetal tissue. And so, yes, God is the creator of life, but um, we're really not talking about life here. I think every woman that I have ever spoken to that has carried a baby to full term uh, would very much understand and, and argue, no, there was a life inside of that woman. Um, the, the kicking, uh, the punching, uh, <laughs> and everything else that was going on, uh, that was not just a blob of, of tissue. Uh, there, there's life there uh, taking place. There's uh, activity. There's heartbeat. Um. So I, I agree. And, and I, women that I know, you know, I've known women who've lost a baby during pregnancy, and there's a miscarriage, and they're, they're emotional. They're in tears at, at the, the loss of this life. But that's really... If, if that really doesn't answer the question about um, is it right or wrong, because it really doesn't start with what does the Bible say. So how, how would we get at this if we're going to go to the Bible and say, does the Bible say anything here about this? Does it tell us anything? Yeah. I Chase, I think we're having camera problems or internet connectivity issues with, with you there. So I, I'll throw out an idea. Let's, there are several passages that I think we're going to end up talking about here. 
But I will start with this passage in Exodus, the 21st chapter in verse 22. And actually, I want to pull this up on screen. Um, I, I guess for my sake, I want to pull it up at a place where I can look at a number of different translations because different translations handle this passage differently. I'm looking at Exodus chapter 21, verse 22, and uh, verse 23 and 24. We'll look at all three of those verses. But we want to notice the difference in how various Bible versions handle verse 22. And I'm just going to read through some of these. And guys, Chase, Joe, if you know of a, a translation that I don't mention that handles it differently, um, you know, call that to our attention. Sure. Uh, the, the King James Version says, If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall surely be punished. Uh, and it goes on. Um, the Christian Standard Bible says, When men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury. The New American Standard says if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely. The English Standard Version says when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm. Uh, the New International Version says if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth premature, prematurely, but there is no serious injury. All of those translations um, are make it clear that we're we're not saying anything um, about the baby dying yet. Uh, there is some translation I don't remember what it was. It may have been one of the editions. Was it the New King? I don't remember what translation it was. Maybe somebody out there remembers that said if a woman miscarries, if men are fighting and they struggle and they hit a woman nearby and she miscarries. Well, to say she miscarries suggests that the child dies. That's an important distinction because in all these other translations, what it's saying is the child is born prematurely. And then here's the reason that is significant. It says then the, the man who hit the woman, he can be fined as the husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But then the next verse says, but if there's any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. The point seeming to be that, okay, it was a crime that you caused this woman to give birth prematurely and there can be a fine. But if the woman or the child ends up being harmed or even killed, then it's a penalty even up to life for life, which seems to treat that child as a life. Thoughts? I think you're exactly right. And I, I was trying to find the other translation and I can't locate it either. So I'm not sure which one it was. I like Stephen Kuffel's comment. One of our viewers, we were talking about, is it life? And Joe, you were bringing up the, the thought about where does life come from? And I kind of played the other side of it and said, well, somebody's going to say, but is it life? One of the things that people will say, it's not a human life. Well, it's obviously living tissue, even if you just say it's tissue. And so the question is, is it human? And Stephen Kuffel says, what does the DNA say? If we tested it, would it be human? Would it be distinct human from the mother? And, and the point is, yes. Um, so, all right, other thoughts, other passages from the Bible that have some bearing on our understanding about this. 
Well, let me just kind of segue into this. Uh, well, let me play devil's advocate. With, with I, I was gone for a little bit, so I apologize if I, if I repeat something. Your Exodus 21 passage, what if you're somebody that says, well, yeah, that was the Old Testament. And, of course, Jesus addressed the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And uh, so that passage, that really doesn't apply. What would you say to that, Jeff? Well, I would say two things. I would say, first of all, the point here is not whether we should administer that punishment. The point here is whether or not God's word regarded the child as a life. Yes. And then, yeah. and then as to the fact that, well, it's the Old Testament, uh, you know, the, we're not living under the old law in that we offer animal sacrifices and such, but there are basic fundamental notions of who God is and who man is and the holiness of God and what sin is and what it does to the relationship between man and God that are taught in the Old Testament. They're just eternal truths. They're just fundamental truths. And the question of what is life is like that. It, what is life didn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So that's what I would say about that. Yeah, there are, there are basic Bible principles that are still established in the Old Testament that would then go to the New Testament. Yeah, uh, maybe, and just, again, uh, I guess a segue to that segue then. In uh, Luke, the, Luke, the first chapter, when you have uh, Mary and uh, coming to visit uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, the text tells us, uh, I'll pick up in Luke 1, uh, Luke 1 and verse 42, uh, or verse 41. It happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, uh, as soon as uh, the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the blob of cells leaped in my womb for joy. Uh, no, it's the babe that leap for joy. You know, a, a blob of cells don't leap for joy. It's clearly a child. Um, uh, you know, uh, I don't understand the idea of leaping for joy pre-birth, yeah. uh, but that's what the text says. And so if we're going to just accept what God says about the matter, uh, it seems very clear. Uh, somebody recently, I, I saw this as a, as a meme, I guess it was, that the first person to recognize Jesus as the Son of God was an unborn child. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, and and I don't. I, I agree with you, Joe. I, I don't know how, what to make of this. That here, uh, this baby still in his mother's womb is aware that the visiting woman in the parlor here uh, is going to give birth to the Messiah, and that this infant inside the womb is joyous about that. The Holy Spirit is involved here. Um, you know, I don't know what to make of all of that, but it's a simple fact that as the story is being presented, there's a miraculous element here, but as the story is being presented, this this child in the womb is not being presented as a blob of fetal tissue, or as you said, a blob of cells. It's presented as a being, as a person, as a matter of fact. Another passage that I might just interject again, and these arguments are only going to be helpful to people who respect God's word as you know, the, the Bible is God's inspired word. Mm-hmm. Psalm 127, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The womb is his reward. And so again, the idea of, of abortion then uh, would simply be rejecting the fruit that God is offering 
or for that woman? So when we think about that, that idea that children are a blessing, and I know, you know, somebody can send us a note and saying, oh, if you had my children, you wouldn't think that. Well, that's a, that's a shame. That's a crime, you know, when people feel that way and says something about the parents, really. Um, but this idea that we're seeing in the Bible, children are not a, a nuisance. Children are not something that are a curse. Children are not something that, well, you know, it happens. It's a blessing from God. God creates life. God creates children. And we don't look at children and say, well, they're getting in the way of my being able to, to live the materialistic lifestyle that I want to live. I can't spend my money the way I would want to because I have to spend money on raising this child. Uh, or what a, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. Maybe I'll, I'll save those thoughts for uh, in just a moment when we talk about why people defend abortion so much. But these, these thoughts come to mind at this time because there is a movie currently in the theaters and the movie is, uh, I think the title is Gosnell, America's biggest serial killer. I may not have gotten the title just exactly right. Um, but the idea of, uh, the movie is not, it's not fiction. It's something that actually happened here in Philadelphia. Uh, back in 2010, there was a raid on a, an abortion clinic, and it was not because it was an abortion clinic. It's because there were law enforcement officers investigating the, um, the, the business of dealing fraudulently and illegally, and they had traced this business back to this abortion clinic. And when they went in to investigate, uh, they found body parts, uh, babies, uh, dead babies, they found gruesome, gruesome conditions. But what was going on was that this Dr. Kermit Gosnell um, was performing abortions, late-term abortions, and in apparently many instances, babies were being born alive. Um, you would inject a drug into the baby to kill the baby before it comes out, but sometimes the baby wouldn't come out alive. And when it did, they would routinely snip the baby's spinal cord with scissors. And uh, he ended up being convicted in 2013. He was only convicted. He was convicted in the in a manslaughter on a manslaughter charge for the death of a mother. He was convicted on I believe it was three counts of of murdering babies that had been born alive. He was convicted of several counts, maybe 21 counts, if I'm not confused here, of late-term abortions beyond the, the legal time period when that could legally be done. Um, but he apparently had done this hundreds of times. Uh, the writer, of the, re the Irish journalist who researched this said that they wanted to charge him with 100 counts of murder um, but that the Philadelphia Police Department was not enthusiastic about doing that because they'd seen a drop in their homicide right, uh, rate and they did not want to see the numbers skewed by this case. Now, whether that's entirely accurate or not, it does seem that many, many, many times um, he was killing born babies. Is there a difference between killing a baby after it's born and killing a baby just before it's born? 
Well, some of the arguments that pro-abortionists or pro-choice make are, well, but that, that, that human tissue pre-born uh, can't survive on its own. Um, you know, it, 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 cannot, uh, it cannot live by itself, which, of course, a one-day-old baby can't either. I, I, it boggles my mind when people say that, that, well, it's totally dependent upon the mother before it's born. After it's born, it is totally dependent. In fact, in the movie, um, and, I, and I, because the movie was based so closely on the court transcripts, I suppose this is the way the, the, uh, in, the questioning of the witnesses went, the defense attorney who's defending Dr. Gosnell puts on stand a, quote, reputable abortionist, and he asks her several questions. How many abortions have you performed? And I think she says, oh, 30,000. And he asks her, how is it done? And she says, well, there's an injection. And he, he has the big, long needle he picks up. And he says, with a, something like this? And he shows it to the jury. And yes, she says. And, and then you reach in and you start dismembering the baby. And he picked up the tool they would use to do that with something like this. And, and she, well, yes. And she's growing a little bit flustered that he's, so graphic in what he's portraying, but that's what she does and does legally. And then he says, well, what if the baby were not to die? What if it were to come out alive? And she says, oh, that, that never happens to me. And he says, but what if it did? What does your industry do? And she finally said, well, I guess we would put it aside. And then she had some kind of term that she used for what they would do. And he said, so that just means you just leave it there to, to die, right? And she said, well, yes. And so he said, hmm. So just leave the child to suffer there until it dies. Seems like it'd be a lot less cruel just to snip it with scissors. And of course, everybody was aghast, but the point was being made. Now, from the defense attorney's perspective, the point was you can't convict Dr. Gosnell for killing babies just after they're born. Yes, it's gruesome, but so is legal abortion, and that's legal. So you really can't convict Dr. Gosnell for doing something that is essentially the same and maybe less painful uh, in the long, you know, not, not, not as painful as long. Uh, but the movie uses that to make a very important point, and, and it goes to this, that there's really very little difference between killing a child just after it's born and killing it just before it's born. I have a comment here from one of the viewers. Uh, Paul Calvert says that in uh, Exodus 21, he's thinking that the further harm applies only to the mother and not to the child. And I think that's kind of arbitrary, but he has a reason for saying that. He says that tooth for tooth can't apply to the child. He says tooth for tooth and so on. Well, children at that age don't have a tooth yet, at least not exposed, not showing. And so he's assuming that it only replies to the mother. And my comment would be that um, the, the whole expression there, and, I, and I'll just read it, uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Oh, I skipped the first part, life for life. That, that is kind of a stock phrase to talk about the idea that you, you, you recompense according to the harm done. Uh, in the instance that's being described, there is no burn. We're not talking about setting somebody on fire. Um, but nonetheless, uh, if there's harm to the mother or the child, then there's a compensation that has to be uh, dealt with. 
I, I think that's exactly right. It's, it's more of like a proverbial statement or, or a, a, a phrase uh, to cover all. Uh, if you notice in the very next text, if a man strikes the eye of a servant or the eye of a maid servant and destroys it, so there's an eye. So if we were going to take that phrase literally, then the owner of that servant should have his eye plucked out, but he doesn't. And so let's don't, let's don't take the tooth for tooth too literal when the very next verse shows us it's not intended to be taken extremely literal. Yeah. And then somebody said, well, then you don't have to take the life for life literal. But the point being is that there is an obligation um, in consideration of harm to the child, in, in, including what bodily harm or harm to the life of the child, which indicates that the child is regarded as a person who has rights. Here. Exactly. Yeah. The, the point is just punishment. Yeah. Well, Jeff, if I'm jumping ahead, you just slow me down. But I think one of the questions that would that I would ask is, um, yeah, we, we can biblically prove that abortion is wrong, but let's address some of the attitudes behind why to have abortion. Let's go there. Let's go there. So the good question is, why is it that people are so adamant about abortion rights? I, I want to throw something on screen here real quickly, uh, see if I can manage to do this. I think I can. Right here. This is a picture of the courtroom scene during the trial of Dr. Gosnell. This is not from the movie. This is actually from the courtroom scene when Dr. Gosnell was being tried. It was a, you would expect there would be a lot of media there to cover such a case as this. One of the workers in Dr. Gosnell's clinic said that um, there would just be babies all over the place. Uh, and he talked about hundreds of babies being killed like this. Um, and then you think about all the other things that just the, the uncleanliness of the place they found, you know, there were cat feces all over the floor. There were, um, it, it was just a disgusting place, just the sensationalism of it. It's just the, the kind of thing that is ripe for media attention but it didn't get media attention. And when the trial was going on, there was one local journalist who was aghast at how little coverage it was getting. And so he snapped this picture of the empty seats where the, the, the seats on the back of the seats, there were papers there marking those seats for media only and media didn't show up. And so he, he tweeted this out and somebody else then uh, used this to shame the national media into covering it. And finally, the national media got, a got around to covering it a little bit. Now, uh, some years later, five years later, the movie has come out. And even though it's done surprisingly well in the box office, um, it's not getting reviewed in the big major media outlets. And so the question is, and the question is why, and the, and the reason is, and the pro-choice people have their various quotes I could offer you. They don't want this to get publicity because they want to be sure. As a matter of fact, this clinic had not been investigated by the Pennsylvania Department of Health for years because Governor Tom Ridge had issued a decree. His office had issued a decree saying we're not going to we're not going to inspect the abortion clinics because we might find something and we do not want to inhibit access to abortion. And so here's the question that they want to get at. Why is it people, in spite of what seems to be obvious heinousness, or even if you want to just say gruesome, who can deny it's not gruesome? Who can deny that it's gruesome? Why is it people are so 
loyal to, desperate to hang on to abortion rights? What's the mentality that lies behind that? I guess your point, Chase. Yeah, I, I, I think what it, revol what it revolves around is I want to do what I want to do. I am in control of my own body, and therefore anything that's in my body, I have the right to decide that it should not be there. I think that's getting to part of it. What do you guys say? Well, and I think you're right. Um, you know, I can quote First Corinthians chapter 6 where it says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Christians belong to the Lord. But what about people who aren't Christians? You know, I, I think that one of the things that we see in a lot of the abortion uh, uh, protests or, or whatever are the signs that say, uh, abortion on demand and without regret. I don't know if you've seen those those posters. No, I hadn't seen that. So they're, they're, they're pretty common, in fact, at some of the rallies, uh, pro-abortion rallies. And, and I think that really does get to it is they don't want anything like the Gosnell movie uh, because they don't want to see any uh, sort of uh, ramifications of their actions. They don't want to think about it because what they're interested in is just living their lives enjoying themselves, not having to think about what they're doing. So you're saying there's a self-centeredness behind this. Exactly. All right. I think that's certainly a big part of it, a self-centeredness. Uh, as you said, I want to live my life. And so if I have somebody who is not starting with God's word, and it, this person wants to be able to, to be sexually active, doesn't want to have any obligation as a result of being sexually active, well, abortion is a way to ensure that there will be no consequences, at least seemingly that there'll be no consequences. What about that idea of being sexually active without responsibility, without consequences? Is that consistent with the Bible? Oh, it's, it's quite clearly um, inconsistent with the Bible to, to be of that attitude. I mean, one of the key examples I would reference would be 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter, where David and Bathsheba have their sin um, that they have both committed, and she ends up getting pregnant, and David goes through great lengths to try and get that to disappear by um, trying to get Uriah to go sleep with her, uh, being back for more, ends up having Uriah killed. And then finally, when David is co uh, convicted and Nathan comes to him and shows him his wrong, one of the things Nathan tells David uh, that, God is, that God said is, the child will die. And that's exactly what happens. And that was a consequence to this sin that they committed. And so there was no avoiding that consequence. Um, so that's one, one passage I would reference. Um, you know, if we start with the Bible, and, and we're going to have to get to the point here in a moment where we talk about the fact that many people don't start with the Bible. But if we start with the Bible, what we understand is that sexual expression, sexual activity is not something that people outside of marriage are to be involved in. Hebrews chapter 12, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, let marriage be had in honor among all and let the bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will ju judge. So fornication is sexual activity, uh, illicit sexual activity. Where is it licit? Where is it legal? Where is it proper? In the marriage relationship. Why? God intends for the sexual relationship to be more than one thing. It's not just reproduction, but it is in part reproduction. It is in part bringing children into the world in an environment where they have a 
family, where they have a mother and a father who love each other, committed to one another, and that child can grow up in the security of the knowledge, I belong in this family, and these are my parents who are going to teach me and help me to become a responsible adult. So, so that's part of the reason for sexual activity is to bring children into the world, and children need to come into a marriage, into a family where the husband and wife marry to each other. Um, but of course, there are other reasons for the sexual relationship. But again, it's it's the intimacy that bonds that re that in, reinforces the bond between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman who have made a commitment to one another for life, and having given themselves to one another, having become one in spirit, they become one in flesh. And, and so there is that element to, to the sexual relationship. And we could talk about other aspects of the sexual relationship, but it's, it's something that's designed for marriage. If we don't start at it from the biblical point of view, we end up talking about, well, what about people who aren't married having sexual relations? They don't, they don't have that, that husband or wife to help raise a child. Problem is when we start with the idea that sex outside of marriage is okay. I think that's exactly right. Uh, the, the respect for God's plan for the home um, needs to be honored, and uh, it, it doesn't start with the killing of the baby. That's not where the the sin begins. Uh, it, it's the breakdown of respect for God's authority in regard to how we're going to live our lives. Um, we've got a, a viewer here who's making a generous offer. Um, this movie, the Gosnell movie is in theaters now, and, uh, he's offering to, uh, sponsor people to go see that movie, um, up to $75. So if there are people who are watching this and they want to, to go see that movie, but can't afford to buy a ticket or something, you might get in touch with me. I might be able to work this out for you. <laughs> Thank you for the offer. Thank you for the offer there to our viewer, Paul Calvert. Okay, so, all right. Yeah, Joe, go ahead. Well, I was just going to make one comment that uh, I don't know where to interject this, but as we discuss uh, this topic that is you know, gruesome in its details that we've not gone through the details, but uh, horrific crime, those um, who have fallen prey to it, those who have uh, uh, been a part of an abortion, um, I think that uh, maybe a word ought to be given in uh, that respect uh, so that we keep it in perspective for somebody who is sensing the guilt, which I think from everything that I've read is extremely common uh, when women walk out of the abortion clinic or, you know, days, days following, they realize the tremendous error of their way and uh, that, that life is missing and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so connected with uh, David's sin, there's a quote from Augustine uh, that I've just written in my Bible in, uh, in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. It's that David's fall should put upon their guard those who have not fallen and save from despair those who have. And so if you have been a part of an abortion, uh, if you have contributed to that, either as a man or as a woman, whatever, uh, you know, learn from David's mistakes that you can recover from that. You can do the right thing. You can become a, 
a faithful child of God, you can repent of that and find forgiveness and find hope. Amen to that. Amen to that. And that's, that's, that points to the graciousness of our God, but it also points to the fact that we have consciences. And, and where do those consciences come from? It comes from the fact that we are not just animals. We have been created by God. We are spiritual beings. This passage in Hebrews, the 12th chapter in verse 9, and it says, it speaks of the Father of spirits, speaks of God as the Father of spirits. And this is, this is really the problem. In our society, we have been led to believe, so many of us have been led to believe that we're here by chance, we just evolved, some of us evolved into fish, some of us evolved into apes, some of us evolved into humans, and um, so what's the difference? So if you can kill a fish, why not kill a baby? Um, that's the problem. But Joe, when we talk about being father of spirits, you and I, you, we were talking earlier before the webcast today, and you alluded to an, one point that some have made in connection with this debate about abortion. What was that? Yeah. Uh, so it's been a few years back. I had someone presented. They were they were really uh, against abortion, but they were trying to analyze this as biblically and as open-minded, opened scriptures as they possibly could. And so they asked me the question um, about, uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, um, when did Adam become a living person? Uh, and in the text, and I've lost the verse here now, um, I should have had that ready. Uh, uh, I'm going to get to it for you. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so the question was, if man doesn't become a living being until he takes a breath, then not to say that children should just be sacrificed on the abortion altar at will, at but is that the same as uh, the idea of taking a, a life that has been born? Um, should we equate those things was the argument that was uh, presented. Yeah, and that's, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think there's, there's a difference between Adam, who is uh, having been created in the flesh but is not alive yet, is inanimate. There's no, there's no heartbeat yet. There's no um, consciousness yet. There's no feeling of pain yet. Um, he is just a form, and God breathes into him the breath of life. There's a difference between that pre-breath Adam and the child in the womb, who while the child is not breathing oxygen into his lungs, that child is conscious. You see in the sonograms, you see the child sucking his thumb. Uh, you see uh, the child kicking. You can the mother can feel the kick. You can even see the kick sometimes. Um, you'll see uh, plenty of evidence that this is, this is a living thing. This is a being. This is animated even before it draws that first breath. But then the question is, does he not get the spirit in him? Is he not, is he not a spiritual entity? Well, <laughs> Adam's case, no. Because in Adam's case, he wasn't even animate before God breathed the breath of life into him. But the spirit in us is not oxygen. The spirit in us is not the air. Um, 
there's a play on the words there, breathing and spirit, yes. But the spirit is something distinct from the air. And, and we see, I think we see an indication of that in the passage we ran in Luke 1, where John in his mother's womb leapt for joy. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and that's the text that I would go to uh, to to recognize that there is life in the, the womb, um, uh, and and that, that God recognizes that as as a baby. Um, uh. Let me, Chase. Were you going to say something? Well, I was just going to mention. I, I I guess whoever is arguing from the Genesis two text like that, they could also use Ezekiel thirty seven a close reading of the Valley of Dry Bones. It wasn't until they came together and had skin on them, and then the Lord breathed into them. So I just thought that was also something yeah. Yeah. parallel. But go ahead. Let me tell you a little bit more about what happened in this Gosnell case here in Philadelphia. Uh, there was a guy named Steve Massoff. He was also convicted of murder. He was one of Gosnell's employees. He had been trained in Granada in, in medicine, but he wasn't really a doctor. But he worked for Gosnell, and he said there were nights when there were so many living babies born, it was almost impossible to keep up with the pace of killing. Here's what he told the jury, quote, Some days I would come up, I'd be called, a scream, and I would go running, and fetuses all over the place, and blood. Gosnell had unqualified and unsupervised employees killing babies. Um, not that it would have been all right if they were qualified, or supervised, but he would tend to come in late, maybe in the evening, but during the day, they would have had various women come in for abortions. One woman in particular uh, who testified, she had worked at the clinic. She went to work for him for $10 an hour for Gosnell. Gosnell taught her and others to snip the necks of babies that were delivered, often before he arrived for work. She herself thought it was a standard procedure, and she herself performed the, the procedure at least 10 times, according to her testimony. Um, just the horrific things, and, and the media was not interested in covering this. Um, the health reporter in, for the Washington Post, this, when she was challenged, why wasn't she covering this? She said, well, it's a local crime. And you think about all the other things that the Washington Post covers, all over the country, but they didn't, they weren't interested in this. Um, Meredith Vieira, everybody knows, I think a lot of people know who Meredith Vieira was back in 1991. This is, by the way, this information I'm going to give you now comes from an article in the Philadelphia Law Review. I'm sorry, not the Philadelphia Law Review, the Villanova Law Review. And a professor from Washington and Lee University did some research and wrote uh, an article that was published in the Villanova Law Review. The point of his article was that pro-life and pro-choice people ought to be able to find some common ground. And, and I would think his idea would be, you know, things like having cleanliness in, in medical facilities, including abortion facilities and that kind of thing. But it was in response to the Gosnell case. But as he, as he kind of described the circumstances of the debate in this country, he talked about how when there are things like the Gosnell Clinic that come up, the pro choice, the pro-abortion people don't want them getting publicity. And he cited as evidence of this uh, a couple of things. In 1991, Meredith Vieira had a 60 Minutes story on the CBS television show 60 Minutes, and it, it detailed the Hillview Women's Medical Surgical Center in Maryland and went through and talked about various women who had been 
horribly injured or killed in that facility. And then mentioned that Vieira, Meredith Vieira, mentioned many pro-choice leaders knew about problems at Hillview, but didn't want them publicized. And when she would interview them and try to get them to come on camera to talk about it, they wouldn't do it. And finally, Barbara Radford, the head of the National Abortion Federation, did respond to her and said, well, I think your first reaction from us was, this is the last thing we need. We had hoped that it wouldn't get national publicity because of the political nature of all this. And he just mentioned that as one example. He cited other examples of pro-abortionist statements that make it clear they're willing to cover up the deaths of, of babies outside the womb. They're willing to cover up the deaths of women who go to these facilities because they are so set on protecting a woman's right and, to choose. And, and maybe, I think it maybe even goes one step further than that. They are very concerned about protecting the money that they make from the woman's right. Because they are genuinely not concerned about the women's rights uh, by the fact that they're covering up the, the murder of these women, uh, the, the, the killing of the, the, the fact that these women have died during abortions. Right. And so it, it really followed the money. Um, a few years ago, Project Veritas uh, that, you know, snuck into the Planned Parenthood and the whole uh, baby body uh, or the body parts, the organs uh, and so forth. You know, all of that ended up being flipped back to suing and trials against Project Veritas when, in fact, it was very clear that all kinds of laws have been broken. But we quit hearing about that. Um, you know, there, there was... When you have people confessing to crimes and then there's no trial, you know, it just it, it is very much a follow the money. And I might just mention one thing that is just shows the ridiculousness of those arguments. If those aren't babies, what are those parts that they are harvesting for organs? Those are body parts that they were harvesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, if, if they're not babies, then they, they, they don't go in to the egg of a chicken and get that. Uh, the, they understand that that's a baby. Uh, they, they understand that those are, are human cells. And Well, for the last three minutes of the webcast today, guys, do you want to go back to something you were saying, Joe? Suppose we have somebody who is listening to this webcast, and suppose this is someone who um, is thinking about all the things she's done wrong in her life. and. Um, she's wondering how can she ever be accepted by God? She believes in God, but she just feels like she's just ruined her life and she can't be accepted. Maybe, maybe she is, as you suggested earlier, she's had an abortion and she's, she feels guilty about that. Um, if I have done something like that, how can God ever accept me? Well, the story we mentioned earlier, I would point her to David the guilt that he had once his sin was pointed out is what drove him to be contrite and to turn his life over back to the Lord. What would you say is the best evidence that we have that God is eager to forgive us? He will go to great lengths to forgive us. What would you say is the best evidence we have of that? He gave his son. He gave his own son. He allowed his own son to willingly go to the cross to, to take on himself our sins and be punished for our sins so that we could stand righteous before God and God could say, you know what, your sins have been dealt with 
in what Jesus endured. And therefore you can stand righteous before me. The God who would do that is a God who wants to save us. He is a God who wants to forgive us. We can't take advantage of that by living however we want. God is not mocked. We can't expect that we can do that. But to the one who submits his life to Christ, puts his trust in Jesus Christ, is united with Christ through baptism into the death of Christ, becomes a part of the death of Christ so that his sins are atoned for in the death of Christ, whatever I've done wrong can be forgiven. Would you agree? Amen. Amen. And, and I might just add to, to those comments, the man who may have been involved in those things, um, uh, not much attention is given on that side, but any man who has, you know, either encouraged a woman to have an abortion or helped to pay for it or in some way been involved, maybe even just by the committing of the fornication, yep. the child was conceived, and then maybe the woman made that decision, he still had a part in yep. eventual death. He, too, needs to not live with that grief. He can find forgiveness for that. Yeah. All right, guys, thanks for your, your help today. Thanks for the participation, and thanks to our viewers for the comments that we got during the webcast. Uh, Lord willing, we'll see you next week. And uh, till then, uh, be studying God's Word.